Can't we each be thankful? Thankful to be able to us gather tonight in this way. Many of those songs that we just sang together had that concept and idea in it, and how meaningful, how moving, and how, quite frankly, how compelling were many of those words we just sang together. As we make ready for this portion of our worship tonight to give thought to an, an aspect or at least a section of the Word of God there in Luke the 17th chapter, I would like to at least begin with a, a brief little announcement, if you please. Uh, the elders here, as you know, at the Pippin Congregation allow um, me to be away for a few Sundays each year for, for um, gospel meeting work, other kinds of activities, even including vacation work. And so uh, next Sunday is going to be one of those Sundays. So uh, they've already made uh, choices and I've already made scheduled arrangements for others to do the speaking next Sunday. And always so thankful for the readiness, the eagerness, and the excellent job that the men do here who so ably and capably take care of the class and the Bible study. So just want to let you know that nothing other than that, but we will be away next Sunday, and we would appreciate your prayers at least in, in light of that. In the 17th chapter of Luke, we encounter a very familiar scene to each of us, those ten lepers. A moment ago, as Andrew read that particular chapter, or at least a section of it to us, those scenes continue to be so very memorable. The thoughts on this opening slide will, in fact, state the particular direction I would hope that you and I could take with that section of Scripture this evening. I think we'd all agree that the Bible is an amazing book from a number of perspectives, and one of them is this one. Have you ever had a circumstance in which perhaps you've read a text dozens of times over the years, but yet you read it anew, and it's as if there's an application within it you'd never seen before? It's almost as if there's a new means in which circumstances in life have changed and suddenly the passage takes on a whole new emphasis, a whole new meaning. Well, maybe as we think about the ten lepers and appreciate the characteristics of the one, I know that, of course, Thursday is that day regarded as the Thanksgiving holiday, but the attribute of Thanksgiving is found throughout the sacred scriptures, isn't it? And tonight, we'll at least draw some applications from this passage before us, reminding us about thanksgiving and reminding us also about the way in which it's such a meaningful matter. I suppose Thursday is a day, at least for many, that workplaces are closed and it's a day that for many families will assemble and gather and it's a day that for many will offer an opportunity for reflection. But yet as those who are of course saved from sin and those who are the prized children of God, we know how meaningful Thanksgiving is, not just this day and not just in the month of November, but yea, every single day. Isn't it still true that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning? The consistency and the constancy of God is truly fascinating. Tonight, as we revisit this passage, thinking about these ten lepers and especially the one why don't we close that slide and allow it to motivate us into this one? The setting is revealed to you and me as follows. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus, on that occasion, the text reminds us, began to set His sights on Jerusalem. That is to say, He was making that final journey to that place which would ultimately be where He would give His life for the salvation of the human family. 
And yet we aren't told in the Bible how many weeks that journey took. We aren't told, in fact, how many months even it may have taken. But we know from that time on he began to set his sights to the reality of his death. Shortly before that, the marvelous matter of the transfiguration took place. And with Moses and Elijah on that mount of transfiguration, the master there appeared. That was again with regard to his coming death. And yet, as we encounter this text in Luke 17, Jesus was continuing that journey to Jerusalem. In fact, in verse number 11, the very place that began our reading a moment ago, this is the description. And it came to pass, as he went to Jerusalem, that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Notice again the highlighted feature of the fact that he was moving, directing his way toward the city of Jerusalem. It was there again that his death would occur. But did you notice? He still, at least in this passage, is a little bit north of that place. The text says he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Maybe this map could be of some help to us. You'll notice on that map I have just shown a somewhat enlarged picture of that region of, of the land of Palestine. There at the bottom, you'll notice the large words Judea, and Jerusalem is just a little bit upward or northward of that. If you're able to see the larger letters, you'll notice the word Samaria written somewhat curved and slanting downward to the right. That particular word there slightly above it, notice, is the region just north of where Judea was, that's to say where Jerusalem was. And if you're able to look north of that, you'll notice Galilee is written even more curved up at the top. Palestine was divided into three somewhat larger regions. The northern one was Galilee, the middle one was Samaria, the southern one was Judea. At this particular place, Jesus was thus somewhat north of that place of Jerusalem. And as He was there in this place of Galilee and Samaria, it seems to me interesting the Greek text actually places a slightly different emphasis upon that phrase. Whereas the King James reads it, he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. The actual Greek text suggests he was on the border between Samaria and Galilee. So as you look at that, Jesus was perhaps still somewhat north of Jerusalem by a decent little amount, but he still was moving southward. He still was heading toward that place, the city of Jerusalem. However, that alone leads us to the very next verse. It says in verse number 12 that as he entered into a certain village, the Holy Spirit did not see fit to tell us the name of this village. In fact, none of the gospel accounts highlight what it was, but it goes on to say that there met him ten men that were lepers. Immediately our mind races to the terrible plight of the leper. That individual who was afflicted with that dreaded disease of leprosy, and you'll notice that as you look at that map again, there were colonies and places outside many of the major cities in which lepers found their dwelling place. Let's go back to the previous slide, if we might, for just a moment. As these lepers met Jesus, you notice immediately it says, in verse number 12, they stood afar off. And almost immediately... It would do us well to remember the circumstances of these individuals. As you and I revisit, for instance, Luke the 13th chapter, we on that occasion are reminded that those afflicted at least in Israelite territory with leprosy were such that 
they in essence were strongly separated from other individuals. It's almost as if they were quarantined. It was a rather contagious thing, and often, in fact, they were absolutely forced to dwell without the city. That is to say, outside the city. Not only that, Leviticus 13.46 reminds us that at least again, those that were Israelites, even from a distance, they had to shout the words, unclean, unclean, so that nobody would even accidentally come near them. I'm sure, sure you and I have often thought about the kind of existence that would be. Suppose, again, you think about a husband and wife. One of them comes down with leprosy. That one is now forced to be separated from the spouse that he or she loves, has to live outside the city. Here were ten men. We don't know how long they had had leprosy, but we know they had it. And you'll notice it says they stood afar off, and verse 13 quickly tells us, they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. They lifted up their voices. And from this distance, they again brought attention to Jesus. Please have mercy on us. And isn't it amazing? They called Him by name. And they even acknowledged Him as Master. You might take note along with me that as they recognized that particular aspect and feature, here they were. We don't know what exposure they had had to the nature of Christ's teaching, but they knew Him. And we don't know what exposure they had had to the characteristics of His teaching and healing in other places, but they knew Him. And isn't it still remarkable in verse 13, they lifted up their voices. They gathered themselves in such a way that they garnered His attention, and it says, have mercy on us. They were so much desirous of the Master extending mercy to them. And you'll notice some of these comments naturally follow. What did Jesus do in light of the request? Verse 14 says, when He saw them. Jesus didn't run from them. It's not as if He commanded them to depart. He did not ignore their plea. Rather, it says in verse 14, that when He saw them, He said unto them, he addressed them as human beings. One of the things that's still a highlighted blessing of Christianity is the fact that it expresses the greatness of God's love to the entirety of the human family. You and I today realize many in our world preach a matter of hatred and they preach a matter of great animosity. But that's not of Christ. It never was of Him. Even to those who were so ill toward Him, even nailing His hands and His feet to a cross, even to them He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke 23, 34. As we find in the very words here, these lepers who may well themselves have been so often the outcasts of that society, so often looked upon in a very condescending fashion, Jesus saw them. And in verse 14 it says... He told them the following words. Go show yourselves unto the priests. A simple declarative statement. Go show yourselves unto the priests. You'll notice that that particular statement is one that probably rang with an element of unusual question in their heart. In fact, you and I might recollect in the Old Testament now, again for those in Israel, 
they were commanded to go to the priest, that is to say those lepers, when they'd been cleansed. When there was potential reason to suspect that their disease had made improvement. Here were ten lepers. Go show yourself to the priest. They might have said, why? They might, in fact, have questioned the master, why should we do this? After all, if we show up there and we have not been healed or in no sense made improvement, he will have every reason to question the nerve of our coming, to question the audacity of our visit. All the text says at the end of verse 14, and it came to pass that as they went. Aren't you immediately impressed with the fact that they went? Aren't you immediately impressed with the fact that here they were, still lepers, and they proceeded on their way to the priest? But however, the last words of that verse were these. While they were going, or as they went, the text says they were cleansed. As if at this point, as we come to the bottom of that slide, we perhaps quickly to appreciate the manner in which this ended, we noticed that as they proceeded on their way and realized that they'd been cleansed, that brings us to the next verse, verse 15. It says, And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God. One of those ten lepers, upon realizing that he had been cleansed and healed, it says he turned back, highlighting the fact that he changed course and turned his direction back to where the master was. And you notice it says with a loud voice, not quietly, not in a manner seeking not to draw attention to himself, but rather with a loud voice, he glorified God. One more time, the impressiveness of this one begs us to note now what follows. Because not only did he use that loud voice to magnify and exalt and glorify God, it goes on to say he fell down, verse 16, on his face, at his feet, in a very humble, prostrate, and thankful way. It says he gave him thanks, and he was a Samaritan. Almost immediately to a Jewish audience, they perhaps would have recoiled with a bit of disgust at the thought of here a Samaritan was lifted so highly. It was a Samaritan of all the ten that turned back to thank him. And yet, in fact, that was the case in this particular statement made on this occasion. We finally notice in verse number 17, Jesus, however, wasn't finished, for he made this statement. Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Forevermore, Jesus etches in your thought as well as in mine the avenue and the requirement and the expectation of thanksgiving. Were there not ten cleansed? The Lord knew exactly the number that He had cleansed. You may remember they had turned from Him and headed to the priest, and yet the Lord knew exactly what happened, and He knew how many there had been. But He also asked, Where are the nine? We're going to use that for the primary development of the remainder of our lesson tonight. But as you'll notice, two last verses. There are not found that return to give glory to God save this stranger. One more time, Jesus made that statement, highlighting only one return to glorify God. And then finally, Jesus in verse number 19 said this last remark to that cleansed leper, the one that was no longer leprous at all. 
Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. As often as I'm sure you and I have thought about that scene and imagined it in our mind, there are several lessons that seem so pertinent that seemingly are very challenging to us and particularly appropriate at this season of the year. Why don't we develop several lessons beginning with this one? Those lepers again. When Jesus met them, and I've already made description about the status of their life, the character of their existence. Some of the scenes in the Old Testament in which we find lepers, they were regarded as some exceedingly dangerous circumstances. You may remember at that scene in 2 Kings chapter 6, it was lepers that existed outside the city, aloof and distant from everybody. Can you imagine how lonely that might be? Can you imagine how distant that would be? Others from a distance, and you see families enjoying times of get-togetherness, and you can't be there because you're a leper. Or you see individuals assembling at the synagogues, or yea, at the tabernacle, and you can't be there because you're a leper. I would have to believe that those afflicted with leprosy were so removed and distant that often it was a miserable existence. Not just because of the disease itself, but because of the fact they could have no close associations. What about you and me in sin? Every single person having reached the age of accountability is afflicted with the most deadly of all ailments. It's sin. How often do you and I read in the Bible passages, and some of them read like this, For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In James chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. One more time we find the inspired writer informing us in no uncertain terms that the eventual and absolute end of sin is death. And yet the fact is, every one of us, at one time at least, were afflicted with it. Consider again these lepers. Consider again the fact that what an incredible change was wrought in them when they encountered the Master. I wonder if they had been waiting for a long time for Jesus to come to that area. I wonder how long they may have been planning so that they would be ensured of having an opportunity to be healed by Him. The Bible doesn't say. I suspect that given their roles as lepers, they would have been very anxious to encounter the opportunity for being healed. Isn't it fascinating? They knew who to go to. It was Jesus. Is it not the case He is still the great physician? When it comes to cleansing sin, in fact, He is the only physician. The human family cannot in any way offer the detergent for sin. No wonder as you and I open the book of Acts, time and again we find the specialness of those who were taught and those who came to the Master. In Acts 4 verse 12, "...neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved." The gospel message is so powerful and strong it could even touch a man, Simon, who himself was a sorcerer. 
and yet he was baptized into Christ. Acts 8, verses 11 and 12. The fascination with Jesus should never be something that slips away from your mind and mine. As you come to the bottom of that, could I ask you this question? Aren't you thankful that the predicament of sin is not necessarily permanent? Aren't you thankful there's a way it can be cleansed? Aren't you thankful there's a way to remove it? Aren't you thankful that it can be forgiven? Wouldn't the message of the Bible be exceedingly bleak if it told us about sin but gave us no means whereby it could be forgiven? If it told us about the terrible end of it but gave us no means whereby it could be removed? And yet the psalmist put it like this in Psalm 103, verse number 12. But as the east is distant from the west, so has he removed our transgressions from us. Aren't you thankful? But not only that, what about another lesson? We've already learned that Jesus did not ignore them. You may appreciate one more time in verse number 14. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Perhaps many times these lepers had been neglected. Perhaps many times they had called from a distance in times of coldness or in times of other difficult circumstances and nobody would come close to them. Nobody would even acknowledge them. Jesus wasn't like that. He not only saw them, but verse 15, He of course spoke to them. He gave them instructions to go to the priest. I've entitled this particular section, This Act of Jesus, The Blessed Response of Our Savior. Not ignoring them, but rather loving them. As you can so see very easily at the bottom, as you and I reflect upon the sacrifice of Christ, each and every one of us could readily acclaim that we are certainly undeserving sinners. And isn't that what Paul described each of us to be? In Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, as Paul addressed that church in Rome, commenting with such power and majesty, for when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Aren't you thankful? for what happened at Calvary. Aren't you thankful for what Jesus did? For you and I know well from the presentation of the book of Hebrews as well as the Revelation that in fact throughout all the halls of heaven nobody was worthy. None of the angels were worthy. But you and I know that of course God was and the second member of the Godhead was dispatched to this planet, dispatched to do for you and me what we could never do for ourselves. Aren't you thankful? That's a timeless message, and you and I celebrate it still 2,000 years later. And yea, throughout all the endless ages of eternity, the faithful shall continue to celebrate it. At the very bottom, I would just ask you, aren't you thankful for the gospel message that tells about the love of God, the marvelous manner of His mercy, the greatness of His grace, the appreciation of, again, the faithfulness of, of what's involved in the service to Him. Aren't you thankful? 
I know that we have many physical blessings to be thankful for, our food and our shelter and our loved ones. But certainly, how great on that list must be the very feature of the gospel message. Didn't Paul say in Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, But though we, or an angel from heaven, should preach any other gospel unto you than that which, which we've preached unto you, let him be accursed. In a manner of speaking, Paul elevated the character of the gospel to the marvelous issue of a uniqueness. There is no other. For that reason, in Romans 16, verse number 25 and 26, Paul closed that Roman letter by highlighting again the fact that the gospel has been preached and individuals are blessedly able to obey it and to be forgiven from their sins. Aren't you and I thankful, of course, for the same? As we think about these lepers, as you reflect upon the thankfulness, no doubt, filling their heart, why don't we come to appreciate this? Point number three in the lesson tonight. One more time, Jesus gave a very interesting order to them. You and I know very well Jesus could have healed them on the spot. Jesus could have pronounced them cleansed immediately, and no doubt that would exactly have occurred. But that's not the way the master did it. He said, go show yourself to the priest. And immediately, immediately you and I learn a valiant lesson. It is the incorporation and the necessity of faith. Consider again the position of those lepers. Here we are, still a leper, and you've told us to go to the priest. What good would that do? What reason is there behind it? Fascinatingly, they went, and they were cleansed on the way. You'll notice they had to act in faith. What if? What if they had said, I'm not going to the priest. There's no reason to. Much like Naaman back in 2 Kings 5. There are other rivers better than the Jordan. Why can't I wash in them? Why can't I dip in that one? The fact is, God said to do it in this one. The lepers had to act in faith or else they would never, you and I would think, would have been healed. No wonder you and I then should consider with care this issue of faith. You see, that very matter teaches you and me a very great deal, doesn't it? It teaches about the element of faith. God in His Word has told us precisely and exactly that which He commands of us and that which He wishes for us for our own good to know and to do. Our job is to obediently act in faith and to do it. Not to question Him, not to try to find an alternate plan, not to try and find a better scheme, but to in faith obey that which He has commanded, exactly like those lepers. He said to go show ourselves to the priest, let's go immediately. And they did it. And it's sad that it seems the necessity of faith is lost in the mind of many today because they think they ought to be able to appreciate reasons for it. I need an explicit reason for it, they claim. And sometimes the secret things still belong to God. We may not have every single detail of every single answer we might want. We've got plenty enough in the Bible about what God wants us to do, and in faith we must do it. When it comes to the plan of salvation, the characteristics of the worship of the church, or anything else, it's still impressive that they obeyed so completely. 
one of the last commandments, or at least one of the last statements on that slide, brings us back to our necessity of considering faith as well. But without faith, it's impossible to please Him, for he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Hebrews 11, verse 6. Maybe in light of that, could we not say this, aren't you thankful for your faith? Aren't you thankful that you obeyed at one point the blessedness of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that you've continued to walk in harmony with it? Aren't you and I thankful for faith? When Paul described faith in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, he said there does abide three great things, faith, hope, and love. We can never bypass the greatness of that matter of faith. Aren't you thankful for yours? Do you remember the day you were baptized? Can you remember it with vividness, walking down an aisle or perhaps after a service, whenever that moment came in your life? Aren't you thankful what took place on that, on that time? Do you remember how you feel when you came out of the baptistry? Do you remember the cleanness, the good feeling that overwhelmed you, the understanding you were in harmony with the God of heaven and that you were a child of His? You were a member of the church and you'd been placed there by Jesus, Acts 2.47. Those are things for which we should be so thankful. Maybe in light of that, we close that slide and come to yet another. For this avenue of thankfulness takes us to some more features in the lives of these lepers as well. You'll notice I've simply entitled this one, Thanksgiving. As you and I revisit verses 17 and 18, that one came back. And the text says, he fell on his face, thanking Jesus and glorifying God. Jesus then replied by asking these two questions. Were there not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Were there not ten cleansed? Doesn't it remind us with the very fact of the Lord asking that question, how significant it is that Jesus expects us to direct thanksgiving to him. He expects it. Doesn't that then reflect very poorly upon you or upon me when we fail to thank Him as we should? Maybe we allow days, perhaps weeks to go by without expressing the heartfelt gratitude that we know we should. Let's go back and build some thoughts. The expectation of Jesus, where are the nine? Today, I wonder how many of us thank Him as often as we should for the things we should. Are we too quick to perhaps forget? Maybe we're all tempted along that line because after all, forgetfulness in that way would be one thing the devil would very much like for us to do. You'll notice some of these additional thoughts. I've listed a number of questions. We've already talked about some of them over the course of the lesson this evening. But I'd like to add a few more to that list and to use them in light of giving consideration to thanksgiving, using the very text before us. Where are the nine? You and I know then that if this perhaps is a teaching, at least respective of the, the quant quantitative features of numbers, is there one out of ten that would express sufficient thanksgiving to God? Do you suppose it's a challenge to all of us to ensure that we remember to thank God as much as we should in prayer? Maybe we're quick to ask Him for things. 
we have health issues and there are matters going on at work and maybe even in the church there are issues and we're so earnest to pray about them. What about just thanking God in prayer? Nothing else but just a prayer filled with thanksgiving. Would that be inappropriate? Would that be out of order? Certainly not. How often in the Old Testament did David exclaim in thanksgiving to God of the 150 Psalms, how many of them express in some cases near fullness with respect to thanksgiving? The answer is quite a few. As you think about the avenues expressed in those thanksgiving psalms, pull out a concordance sometime if you like. You'll notice that many of the psalms are categorized. There is a category known as thanksgiving psalms. Among that list, like Psalm 111, Psalm 112, Psalm 113, sections of Psalm 118. Maybe to reflect upon that is to say, maybe I, maybe you should do better than what we've been tempted to do on occasion, to forget too many things. Thanksgiving. Isn't it fascinating, this one leper? Although he was now cleansed, he didn't immediately go to the priest. Rather, it seems, he first turned back to express thanks. That's fascinating. Maybe that thanksgiving brings us to Acts 8, verses 39 and following. The Ethiopian nobleman, the eunuch as he's called. After Philip baptized him into Christ, it immediately tells us that eunuch went on his way rejoicing. What a happy man. What a man overwhelmed with the greatness and the goodness of what he now experienced himself. Are you a rejoicing person? I suspect that there's a strong correlation between thanksgiving on the one hand and a rejoicing spirit on the other. For if you and I are each day thankful for the simple things in life, water, soil, the capability of air, these little things that God has filled your life and mine with, and it's true that life often requires them like air and water, but aren't you wonderfully thankful that God has made them available and you and I live in a place where they're so abundant. May we be thankful for those things. Not only that, look at the next question. I mentioned earlier tonight about the church. There's no question that the church was established roughly two millennia ago now. And although it went through a period of weakness, often called the Dark Ages, it has risen to prominence certainly here in the United States of America. And you and I live in the not only the Bible Belt, but we live in the buckle of it. Having grown up in a place where the church was known and loved, able to attend it all the days of our life, do we take that for granted sometimes? Get up on Sunday morning and we so easily are able to attend on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights, and yet our brethren in far distant places often have to walk on foot for far distant places in the cold and they go there and sit all day long, hearing sermon after sermon and seemingly are thrilled to do it. Are we as thankful as we should be? He sure has heaped blessings upon us, hasn't He? As you think about that avenue of thankfulness, doesn't it also bring with it some rather personal questions? Where are the nine? Am I then a faithful Christian as I ought to be? Or have I allowed a few things to slip? Have I started to think things I shouldn't? Say things I shouldn't? Go places I shouldn't? 
have I found myself then neglecting some of the very duties that are so great in terms of being thankful? Maybe your parents, as well perhaps as many of us, can remember parents who tried to instill within us a disposition of thankfulness. We find even Jesus would strive to instill that within us too, wouldn't He? Maybe one last set of ideas. The way of life that you and I enjoy as a Christian. I know that each of us have perhaps been perturbed as we've seen the developments around the world. A week ago, day before yesterday, we remember what happened in Paris and what happened even in other places not too far distantly long ago. Terrorism, hardship, evil it seems that abounds around this world. Aren't you thankful that you can pillow your head at night peacefully? That you can go to sleep knowing the protective arms of the Master are around you and even if you don't rise tomorrow morning that all is well with your soul. Aren't you thankful for that easiness, that confidence, that assurance that's yours? Those in the world don't have it, but you and I as Christians do. Aren't you thankful? That one leper did return upon his being cleansed, and he expressed a, with a loud voice the thanksgiving of his heart. May you and I have a heart filled with always a readiness to express that same element of thanksgiving. As we close this lesson tonight, we have looked in a little bit of detail at the record of those ten lepers. And we found that upon their being cleansed, one was so quick to express thanksgiving. May you and I have a heart always ready to be thankful for what we've got. Blessings both spiritual and physical. And to ever be quick to express to God our heartfelt gratitude. That's one of the ways that makes worship such a meaningful enterprise, isn't it? We come together and as we engage in the five acts of worship, we're able to do that, appreciative of His blessings toward us, and we can express to Him the heartfelt gratitude that we feel. Don't you look forward to heaven someday where you can express gratitude to Him forevermore through the ceaseless ages of eternity, thanking Him for what He's done and the way He did it, for Christ's blood shed at the cross. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Hebrews 9.22 At the bottom of that slide, you'll see just a few quick reminders of tonight's lesson. Are you thankful tonight? If you have never become a Christian, may I say you haven't yet expressed any thanksgiving to the Master for what He's done. To this point, you have not reached out in faith to what He did for you. If you would like to take care of that fault in your life, we would be happy to assist you tonight. May I say too, that plan of salvation, it demands that you believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name and be baptized if you have begun that walk with Him, and perhaps you knew the avenue of thanksgiving for a while, but maybe you've allowed the matters of life to bring you to be defocused. You now look elsewhere, and you know your life is not as solid, it's not as faithful, and is not as earnest as you know Christ would want it to be. Don't you want to pray for, for faithfulness, and don't you want us to pray to God for you? We'd be honored to do it. And He'd be honored to hear such a prayer, and He'd be honored to forgive you. If we could help you this very night, the gospel invitation is extended just like that one leper. 
don't you want to express thanksgiving? If we could help you do that in a scriptural way, please let us know. And why not do it now while together we stand and while we sing?